Hello, everyone. This is Ari in the air. Currently, Ari in the chair behind the computer editing all these episodes. I'm about to head out on a week-long paragliding trip to the North Cascades, a really tall and scary mountain range here in Washington. And before I go, I want to drop this episode on your head. This is a conversation with my friend Daniel Kazanjian. You have heard Daniel on this podcast before. You're going to recognize his voice as the smooth and sultry philosophical DJ that swoons us with his insights and today is no exception. Daniel lives in Toronto and is a practicing stoic which is a very interesting thing we get into today. <laughs> I actually really enjoyed the uh, the perspective of the Stoic here in this conversation. He's an amazing listener, and just I love the presence and space that he creates in our conversations, and I feel so welcomed to share all of my gritty, n- nitty-gritty, dirty details. And so I, I'm really grateful and excited for you guys that you get to listen in on that kind of space. So um, today we talk about parenting and partying, and it's just the perfect, perfect uh, topics for this. This These are things I've been noodling on really hard lately, as you will hear in our conversation. And so I actually invite Daniel in this conversation to create something with me, create rituals and imagine what rituals and ceremonies might look like. And uh, I want to invite you into that as well. So listen in on what it is that I'm laying out here and then feel free to write out what you think your idea of these ceremonies, rituals and uh, time frames might be and email them to me at airyintheair at gmail.com. Would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, without further ado, a little bit of music to set the mood for my talk with my friend Daniel Kazanjian. Never not be recording on these things, especially with people like you. 
that's where all the gems are. <laughs> that's um, where they start. Yeah, for those of for those of you who missed it, we were just talking about how in masculine relationships, uh, the default is often challenging one another, often sparring or sarcastic comments or things that are kind of confrontational. Mm-hmm. And Harry, you were saying that you are saturated with that because you're getting challenged from all sides and you're kind of looking for something different. And I wanted to challenge you on your conception of debate because I, I don't think it's debate itself or confrontation itself that uh, creates the issue that I think you're referring to. And you can totally correct me if I'm wrong on this. I think it has something to do with when confrontation stands in the way of intimacy. And it doesn't always do that. I think some types of confrontation actually facilitate intimacy. It's like sometimes you, two, two people clash and then they just bounce back and then they stay at the same level. Mm-hmm. But sometimes two people clash and then they like iterate towards something deeper. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious as to what, what are the attributes of that second thing versus the first thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I guess the first thing I would I almost want to just start with what are the attributes of the the previous? What are the attributes of the the masculine relationship that I feel unnourished by? And I think it's it is a challenge and a confrontation before curiosity. Mm. It is a reactive challenge. It is a if you say that like it's it's almost performatively playing the sparring. Right. As opposed to like genuinely challenge, like if I need challenged, like, please, like I need that. Like, that's why you're in my life. Like I need you to challenge me, but like, I don't need you to just hear what I say and then just challenge it because you want to challenge it. Like if you're going to challenge it, like I need you to under, like at least have a pretty good feeling that you understand where I'm coming from or what I'm saying. And it's like a kind of a questions before answers thing, you know? Mm. It's a questions before answers thing. And there's maybe an egoic quality about it too, right? Because sometimes I'm trying to think when I do that and I, I like to, to create order in conversations. I like to reach resolution. Um, and sometimes I think I have it all figured out and I can see someone floundering in what from my perspective looks like their confused you know, narrative, their confused mm-hmm. story. And I'm like, oh, they just need to, and then <laughs> you just want to impose the clarity that you think you have. And the payoff there is it feels good for me to create order in that realm and then to get some sort of maybe validation or to feel smart or something like that. But it's not coming necessarily from a, a place of love where I'm trying to create order for the sake of the other person. Uh-huh. You know, I'm trying to create order for my own sake. Yeah, this is amazing. That's incredibly relevant. This was last night in bed with my girlfriend where actually we were talking about one thing, a pretty heavy emotional, um, something in our, in our closest friendships, right? One of our closest couple friends are having some issues and we're, I'm not sure how to address it. And so I kind of, we're talking about that. And then there was a, you know, there was at some point, I did exactly what you're talking about. I felt it was important to kind of frame the conversation or at least outline what I thought our conflict was, outline like where I think we went off the rails and my intuition as to where it went off the rails. And as I got more clarity, 
the cadence of my voice picked up. Mm. We were in bed, the lights were off. And so I think I was speaking at a, uh, in a regular speaking tone. And I think that all of the content just, just, I just missed her on all of it because the speed and the tone and the, she just felt bombarded. She was like, it put her hackles up and she couldn't hear anything like that. And mm. so, yeah, framing the conversation is, I don't know, I guess one of my intuitions is that it's in that way, like there was nothing collaborative about that. There was mm. no consensus there. I was like, I was like kind of writing the mandate on how this conversation was going to go. It's my intuition as to where I lost her. Yeah, you know, I I find this whole idea of the metagame to be kind of helpful with these types of interpersonal conflicts um, because what I'm realizing is sometimes you think you're both playing the same game when you're talking mm-hmm. to your partner. You think you're playing the game of there's a problem that was presented and we're both using our intellect to try and resolve it. But then at some point, because of you, know, you start to encounter friction and you realize, wait a second, we're playing two totally different games. Mm-hmm. And to be able to step out of that, to go meta on that, and to think, okay, what, what, am I, what do I actually want? What do I actually care about in this relationship? Mm-hmm. Um, you kind of hold whatever game you're playing a little more loosely at arm's mm-hmm. length, and then you can drop it. You can say, all right, I'm not going to continue on this path of the achieving clarity through verbal constructs game mm-hmm. and i'm going to switch to communicating love and affection in a way that this person can receive game and to call that a game is a is kind of a cheapens it but i think you know what i mean yeah i do yeah yeah it's almost in that in that it's like we're using game as like not so much like win or lose but just like kind of intention based or some sort of uh, potentially goal-oriented mm-hmm. enterprise yeah. with players that are either collaborating or competing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that in itself is just a frame that needs to be dropped when it needs to be dropped as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. This idea of collaboration is really... Um, you know, I had Rich Bartlett on the podcast a couple times early on when he was just locked down in Italy and I made a tweet the other day that was like, yeah, when I interviewed Bartlett, I was like, yeah, like the world doesn't know how to work together. And then like, as that sat with me, it was more like, oh my God, I don't have any idea how to work with people, Mm. you know, like, um, Stopped playing team sports when I was 20. Took on these incredibly solo uh, and not solo at the same time, like these other sports. And it's just crazy how conditioned we are to feel like we're separate. I'm reading Charles Eisenstein's Sacred Economics Mm. and the ways in which we are just conditioned from childhood to think that we're separate to have to take tests alone don't cheat don't you know like it's just the the whole looking back at my 
childhood with a new concern for how the world is, is so painful. It's so painful. It's like, I am having to reconcile traumas from my childhood that I didn't know were there because I didn't recognize them as traumas. But as I acknowledge the huge problems in the world stemming from this feeling of separateness, this feeling of scarcity, like the feeling of it, not even nothing in the objective world, just this feeling that we have, that we were conditioned to take tests alone, that we were that we were earning our own grades, that we were, you know, like all this shit. It's like things are mine or things are yours. There's like so many small seeds that get planted, that grow into you just being, or I'll say myself being further and further and further from everything and everyone around me. Right. Right. And it comes in, like, I see it rear its ugly head, even in just like the fine, like our interrelational finances in my, in my intimate relationship with my girlfriend, you know, it's um, the ways that it manifests as an adult are crazy. And I've been on this shtick for a while here. I, I think I told you in our first conversation that I found philosophy in general uh, you know, seven, eight years ago, finding a presentation on YouTube by Molyneux that was peaceful parenting. I think that was like one of the first cycles that I was in of like kind of awakening to my childhood, starting to face the ways that I had been raised, conditioned. And I feel like I'm in another one now, especially as I talk to people like Zach Stein education talking to if you want to talk about you know like i i guess to simplify where i'm at right now it seems like i can't shake the thought that if the world is fucked up then parents are fucked up Mm -hmm. parenting is the soil from which society grows and our society is fucked and if we look at myself and all my peers we are raised the word I would use is with short sightedness. Mm. It's just, we live in a world of parents who are short sighted. I want to ask though, what, just to make it a little less conceptual, what did your parents get right? And I want to share what my parents got right as well. Okay. My parents divorced when I was six. And so when I think about my parents in general, I think of them as like two kind of separate entities. And so I think that the things that my mother got right are levity, humor, um, and a less conditional type of love, a more humane type of love. Uh, You know, like I have never been reprimanded by my mother for cussing, for drinking, for smoking, for doing drugs, for having sex, for these things that are just like, I don't know, seems, seems to be crazy to not talk to your children about that and then reprimand them when they do it. So I never got that. She gave me a lot of freedom. 
she's very funny. But at the same time, I think there was a lot of her own shadow in that. that was She couldn't say anything based out of hypocrisy. She struggled with those kinds of things herself. My father was the structure. And things that he got right are essentially, I, I think he's a pretty, he's a game A player. He's a game A person and he kind of like, he emphasized, he emphasized like having to play the game. And I think to some extent it's true. You got to play the game. He was a water skier and a snow skier. He bought a boat when I was nine and I learned how to drive it immediately. I became a wakeboarder. We spent an insane amount of days camping and being on the boat. We, I learned to ski when I was eight, which those things set the trajectory for my life. Mm. Those things set the trajectory for my life. So um, I think my father, the best thing I think is, was his emphasis on leisure, his emphasis on sport and leisure. Uh, yeah. How about you? All the bad things bubble up there and I just bite my tongue. I'm like, okay, wait. Yeah, it's yeah. Not, not quite time for that. I kind of wanted to to push to gratitude because it's it's easy to point out the flaws, right? I think I think there's definitely some parallels there. Um, most notably in terms of mom being more of the unconditional love, nurturing type, and dad being more of the structured type. I think one thing that both of them got right was an emphasis on, on love, like not even just showing love in the way that they knew how. And I don't think they necessarily did that perfectly or at times even you know, sometimes it wasn't even all that skillfully. Right. But it was very clearly established as a value. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with, like, I was raised Christian. Um, my parents are still religious. I'm, kind of become the black sheep of the family. Um, but those values are still kind of like underneath everything. And with that, so on my mom's side, I think my mom was always oriented towards what, what is like the loving path here? You know, how can you be more compassionate here? And the, the challenge involved in like letting go of, you know, the thing that you want in favor of compassion. I think my mom walked me through that a lot when I was quite young, you know, like conflicts with my siblings, for example, where, you know, even though I was the one that was wronged, there was a way that we could resolve it through being more compassionate or something. Mm. And that's, that's hard. And my mom modeled that. And then my dad, um, I think he, he modeled the sacrifice side of it. Um, because he's a little more distant. Uh, I would say he's less articulate on, the language of intimacy to put it one way, but he conveyed his compassion through his sacrifice, through his work. You know, um, he, he would, uh, 
he'd always try and make sure that we were doing well before he considered anything for himself. And I just saw that all throughout my, my childhood. It's beautiful. So you have this thing that I've been literally wondering about for three years or more. Mm. And so I think that this is kind of my, this has been our segue into this because I would love to create something with you. I'd love to ruminate on what this might look like because it seems clear that ancient civilization all over the place had various types of rites of passage, mm. coming of age. These were ceremonies. These were vision quests. These were, you know, like everything from, you know, there's like that Indian tribe that to become a man, you have to put your hands in these mitts that are filled with these bullet ants. Yeah. And you don't just have to do that once. You have to do that like fucking once a week for a year or some shit. There's the other one that builds the big tower in the jungle and the young, the young men have to go out into the jungle and find their own vines that they then make essentially a bungee cord out of and they tie them to their ankles and they have to jump headfirst off of this giant tower. And only if they, you know, like, like they literally can die from this thing and mm. it catches them so violently by their ankles. In the Mexican tribes, there was this peyote or these big, intense, long, isolated suffer fests that were these vision quests, right? You have to collect, you have to find the things yourself. You have to, you know, you go walking out into the desert without food or water. You're, you're fasting, you're isolated. You get fucked up on the most powerful chemicals that completely mm. and totally disrupt your reality, right? It's deeply disruptive. All of these things are deeply disruptive. And there's a, there's a communal aspect to it where like on upon reentry, right? Mm. You don't just get back and no one says anything to you. There's like a reason that you do these things, right? Like we you land these, somewhere. You land somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and so I was talking to my, one of my great friends the other day. He has a child who's, six weeks old. It was his birthday. I was talking to him on his birthday and I started kind of laying this out for him, the same thing that we're talking about. And he says, yeah, like at what point did I become a man? Mm. Was it when I got married to Rachel? Was it when, I, when she got pregnant? Is it six weeks ago? When was that? And I guess I ruminate on all of this as, the, as a hypothetical parent. Mm. 
I ruminate on this as a hypothetical parent and also the adult version of a child who didn't get this. I feel like I lacked this in my life. Okay, so it comes from two places. What I think is missing is these rites of passage, these ceremonies where we revere the child, where we acknowledge, appreciate, guide, inform. These are things that they have new privileges. They have new responsibilities. They have a new experience physically, biologically, chemically. There are changes that are going to happen in them. There are changes that are happening in the community. There are relevant pieces of history, relevant traditions, things. There's like times to understand these things, right? The most notable is like a birthday, right? And nowadays, the birthday ceremony is essentially, you can do whatever you want. It's your birthday. It's like a hedonist thing. And then you just like blow out your candles. Mm. And then it's over. There's By really way, like- my, my birthday last weekend. So I've been <laughs> thinking a lot about this. <laughs> well, happy belated, happy belated. Um, and so the, the birthday is a, is a obvious one because it can't, we, we, we mark it already. But there's other ones that we're missing. There's other ones like, and I'm not totally sure exactly like the human development uh, where these milestones might be. And I'm interested to have the same conversation with people like Stein or Verveke who might have a much clearer intuition as to where these lines might be. And I don't think they're as much chronological as they are developmental. But I think that at some point, like when your child gets potty trained and can walk is like a milestone where you're like, Hey, you now have this like extra privilege. You have this new power. And along with this power to be able to walk comes the responsibility of not walking in the fucking street. Right. There's like, yay, let's celebrate your new power and also bestow onto you this new responsibility. Right. I think that, I think that one of the, my intuition as to why this is happening, I think that in these ancient civilizations, in these ancient communities or in any community that is actually the Dunbar number in a community of 150 people that are helping each other survive, the development of every single person is so incredibly important. Mm, No one gets left behind. You can, if someone's left behind, we are all fucked. You can't afford it. We cannot afford to leave not a single fucking person behind. We have to find what this person is good at. We have to help nurture and grow them into a person and then facilitate the shit out of whatever it is that is their gift. But nowadays, we can buy our fucking groceries at the grocery store and we can just shuttle our kids around to keep them busy and out of our hair. So there is a part of this that I fear is that we are literally losing our individual importance in the eyes of our parents and our community, which is a terrifying and horrible, traumatic thing. Yeah. And that is obvious because of the outcomes. You know, I can't remember where I heard it somewhere like in network or in a systems systems theory that when there's a, if you want to know what a system is for, look at what it does. Don't look at what people say it's for. (laughs) And this is like, okay, modern parenting. What is this for? Well, kind of just like beat you down into like a lumpy something, but give you affection when it matters. It's like, oh, 
it's got to be better, man. It's got to be better. Like the, and, and this is something where I like, I kind of pull my hair out on this a little bit or like the things that we talk about. This is a little bit of a tangent. The things that we talk, like the void of parenting in the conversation of changing the world is absolutely insane to me. It's insane. The parents as a protected class is such a disservice to humanity. Right. Parents as a protected class is a disservice to humanity to say that we can't judge parents. Oh, they can do it however they want. No, no, no. You hit your kid in the grocery store and I'm going to fucking, we're going to have a conversation. Just that's it. So I think we really need to look at these things. We need to look at these systems. So the thing that I'm talking about, these, these rites of passage, the questions that I have are, at what stages of development are these important? My intuition is that they're like potty training and being able to walk. And then they're like when you're six or something where you really kind of like start to get your own independent cognition and you can have more responsibilities. And it's probably again, like at 11 and probably at like, there's something around puberty, both entering and exiting. Um, and I think a birthday is like the every year there's got to be some kind of like acknowledgement of development, uh, guiding of values and, uh, and this is all on top of just a mere celebration. So glad that you're alive and that you're here and we appreciate you. So I think this might be something that helps for parents to understand there's probably some milestones that you need to um, acknowledge. And I'll tell you how I kind of came across this. I came across this by throwing a huge birthday party for myself. Mm. Mm. Me and my best friend, Matt, we fucking found this crazy cave outside of Bend. It's just so surreal. He runs a fencing company, so we've all got all kinds of generators and extension cords. So we put the generators on top. We run the extension cords way down into the cave. We power lasers and lights and huge music and a massive bonfire and smoke machines and my other buddy caters the thing. He owns a restaurant. So we bring a bunch of food and a bunch of, you know, my, we have this huge party for like 14 people. Mm. <laughs> like the, my close knit, like we put, we spare no expense for 14 people. Right. And it was just incredibly transformational. And it was like, Oh, I, it was almost a realization of, no one is going to take my development seriously. So I need to, mm. right? It's almost like I, if no one's going to like go out of the way to like mark the development in my year, then I really need to, you know? And still there's like three years later, I have this party every year and I still am the one that gives this, <laughs> the only, I'm the only speech giver. I'm like, hey, anybody else? No, nothing. Okay, well, can here we go. <laughs> I think, um, you know, earlier you were saying that the, the rite of passage would would involve a community, right? And you're received back into a community. Mm -hmm. And 
I think what you just mentioned is another example of how people feel like they need to initiate themselves. And normally that's something that the community does. You know, you just said, no one's going to take my development seriously. So I have to, it's like, well, that's, that's kind of a tragedy, right? Like I I know what you mean. I I cried about it this year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, so this, this is something very alive to me too. Um, because I, I just had my birthday and I was thinking about this and I was thinking about the social norms even around, you know, your birthday's coming up and part of you wants people to initiate and participate. Like you want your close friends to, to do something, uh-huh. but they also want to know if you want them to do something and there's like this weird stalemate. So ultimately it falls on you to like initiate to get the ball rolling or whatever. But if anybody, any of your friends decide to go ahead and like throw a surprise or whatever, it's always well received and everyone has their schedules and stuff and they have to like book in advance and like, there's all this friction in the way of a simple ritual that happens every year. And I mean, if you have a lot of friends, then it happens multiple times a year. So maybe it's not so simple, but anyways, I, I, I felt the, I felt the desire for something deeper. And I think I, I think, you know, to some extent I, I touched something deeper, but every time you celebrate life, you, you, are, you must rec- reconcile yourself with death, right? Like if you're, you know, you're one year older and you're one year closer to death in a way. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that side of it that I think, you know, we're, we shy away from. It's like the, the elephant in the room. You know, people make jokes about it. You know, they're like, oh, I'm graying, losing my hair or whatever. But I think these rituals, I don't know, like, you almost think of the classic initiation ritual as, as practice for death because you're risking death and you're trying to develop a better relationship with it, the relationship with your finiteness. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's a way that your birthday celebration can incorporate both where you're happy that you're alive, but you're also looking at death in the eye. Mm-hmm. I like that aspect. And there's a, there's almost a format to these parties that we've done that I've almost retroactively created the meaning from. And one of the things that has made me ponder this from a parenting standpoint is that one of my closest friends has four children and I have always invited them. I have always invited them and I've told Sean, Hey Sean, like, we're going to make a mushroom tea. Should we make a tea for the kids? Like, do they want to be a part of the ceremony? Do they want to try to stay up all night? Do they want to like, like, cause they can be as involved in this thing as, as they want to be. Um, you know, we don't have to give them LSD just yet. You know, it's like, next year. yeah, maybe next year. Um, and there's a, there's, there's something about it. There's something, the, the structure of these parties is typically we gather, we build something together. Like we literally set up our space together. We haul generators and speakers and firewood. And like, there's a, there's like a, the village comes together to make this new space, this place. Mm. And I invite everyone. I say, bring your lights, bring your lasers, bring your toys, bring your costumes, bring your, 
whatever you want to bring that's going to be fun and bring an energy in yourself and your presence. And it's like, there's something we, we start by creating, we start by creating something and then we consume. Typically we'll have my friend cater the thing and we'll eat a nice meal. He's Greek. So we have Mediterranean on my birthday usually. And, uh, and then we have a fire and we stand around the fire. We make mushroom tea, lemon, ginger, psilocybin mushrooms. And this last year I said, Hey, everybody grab something to drink. Come join me by the fire. I'm going to teach you how to party. (laughs) And essentially when I said I was going to teach you how to party, I was basically going to lay out the meaning behind what we're doing here. Let's hear it. I'm trying to imbue these things with meaning. So first of all, there is an obvious one that everyone's cup is now full of what is a incredibly powerful hallucinogenic compound. And this is the disruption. This is the deviation from our normal states so that we can actually comprehend so that we can feel into new things so that we can go somewhere new so we can shake it up. This is the disruptive part. And it's a really important part. There's like, there's a couple of different things that are like smaller pieces, which are like the music and the dancing, which are just like ecstatic. There's just an ecstaticness to it and the movement and the way that you feel your, the way you experience your body and each other in this new disrupted world that we're in. But one of the biggest parts is this endurance to eat dinner and then take a bunch of drugs is antithetical to your circadian rhythm, right? It is disruptive in its very nature. Mm -hmm. And there is the, the, the metaphor of the night, the darkness is exactly what we're talking about, right? Like, the sun is going to go down. It's going to get darker and scarier. And we're going to like let ourselves go to these places that we might go. It's like this, just because we're going to listen to good music doesn't mean that we're all going to be happy this whole time. Mm. Right? Like it's dark. It's scary. It's cold. Like my birthday is December 22nd. It is mm. literally the shortest day of the year. It is wow. the longest night to endure. And we set our intention to endure the entire night because typically at these parties, we'll have 20 people, four will make it, five will make (laughs) it, right? And my closest friends, the people that we've like really created this like through experimentation, this structure, we're the one that we make it every time. Like Mm. the five of us, we make it every time. And so the like the feeling of community as we come out of this, like I look at my friends who we've made it another year through the entire night is like, it's fucking, I could cry right now thinking about that. Right. So there's what, this. Endu- what constitutes making it when you see the sunrise? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think so. Yep. It's at least a 12. 
honestly, this is the thing. I, this is one of the ways that I kind of got into music was I started building these playlists of playlists. I started curating like the whole arc of the experience, the 12 hour arc of experience. Mm. And so basically what we're trying to get to is the end of the playlist. Right. Right. Sunrise something. Right. And just as an aside on that, actually, I, I once heard from a cognitive scientist that if you break out an event or an evening or anything into a three act structure, um, you're, it's easier for your brain to create memories out of it. And so the whole experience feels more significant. And so if you do that with your playlists, if you do that with like the lighting, with like wow. you know, where you move. Mm, I love that. I love that. I was literally just thinking about that yesterday. I was thinking about reiterations of this structure, experimenting with the structure of this more. And we've always, I always say that I have broken like a mushroom trip into three trimesters. I've always said that. Mm. And I always say to my friends, I'm like, oh, we're in the second trimester. First <laughs> trimester is already started. Like if you know you're going to do a trip like, and you feel the, the anticipation or the nervousness or any Before of that. Before you take it? Yes. Right, right. You're already in the first trimester of your trip, buddy. <laughs> you're already feeling it. You're already doing it. Yeah. It's already like you're already, your mind's brewing. You still whole... haven't come down from the last one. <laughs> And uh, the first trimester takes you through your waking up, your come, your come up, right? Right. And then the second trimester starts when you're like, you're actually the the meat of the trip. When you peak. Pretty much, yeah. And before and after that a bit, uh, typically you lose your words if you've taken enough. You lose your words. You might feel euphoria. You might feel fear. You might feel have visual hallucinations, those kinds of things, like the meat of your trip. The mm. third trimester starts when you glimpse your words back. When you start mm-hmm. to, you're like, wow. The your concepts start to like float back in front of you. And you they start to re- flow back. Rebuild reality. And you can almost look back and be like, whoa, that was pretty fucked up there. <laughs> that was crazy. <laughs> and the third trimester lasts typically for at least 24 hours after that because mm. if I'm full of reverence. I'm full of um, gratitude. I'm full of the remnants of my processing that I've like, this is honestly, man, like this is a big part of my emotional metabolism. We do these parties four times a year. They're essentially mm. my birthday, Matt's birthday, and then two other kind of, uh, you know, paragliding related timelines. So it's a big part of my emotional metabolism. And I, I'm curious as to how we can shape it and form it to, to be even more meaningful. And that's what I've tried to do every year, you know, at both my birthday and Matt's birthday, I try to like, I try to at least like stop us before we take the drugs and be like, Hey, there's Mm -hmm. a reason, there's a reason we're doing this. There's a reason there's more meaning that we can make out of this than if we just take it and get high and then wake up. Do you ever have the experience of this group of people, right? You're doing it consistently year after year. So you have, you have solid friendship there. Do you find that uh, you have, you have experiences where the boundaries between the selves start to disappear and you start to kind of conceptualize yourself as, as more of like the group as opposed to just people together in a group? Yeah, I think so. I think it. Group consciousness or whatever. 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if I would call it like that. Like there's almost a, so much of it is nonverbal. Yeah. So much of it is nonverbal, you know. But yeah, I mean, I have felt a, a deep connection to all of the people and to us as a group. And um, I'm also, you know, even in, even during the parties, there's like waves of nostalgia of all the previous parties. Yeah. And there's things that have happened in the previous parties that were so funny that we all like died laughing that as those memories come up, it's just like a further iteration of our connection and our history and the whole thing. Right. And we also encourage each other. And it's also, you know, we support each other. There's like, we massage each other. We, we like a silly instance is my friend, Sean, he, one year he just like wanted a double dose and we gave him a double dose. But at some point, like I knew he needed his jacket on. And so we like put his jacket on him, you know, like mm -hmm. he's too high to feel it, but he's like, he puts the jacket on. He's like, Oh, thank God. Like well, <laughs> he's missing that. You know? So we're looking out for each other. We're taking care of each other. And it's also not like, Oh, you didn't make it. It's a shame. It's like, no, you're tired. It's okay, man. Like, it's okay here. We'll make the bed for you. You know, we right. pull the bed right up next to the fire. We're like, yeah, you can go to sleep, but you can't go. You, have, yeah. you sleep right here. You sleep right next to us. Like we're not turning the music off. You can sleep right there, man. Um, so, you know, there's, it's, it's strange how like this, these parties have literally ignited in my mind, parenting, family, structure, community. And there's things that my parties have that society doesn't. Right. The parties need, and obviously society needs it. And our parenting needs it. Our development, we're like, we need these things. We are in a time where we are in a crisis of metabolism of emotions. The amount of my peers who have no emotional metabolism is way too high and my own metabolism of emotion has come in in the last three years what do you mean by emotional metabolism some structure to process your human experience it's a lot to be a person i don't know if you've noticed what i know these terms are are used a lot and i'm just curious what your particular definition is because even processing human experience is is too vague for me to connect okay. with. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I think that in general, you know, like the term Viveki uses ecology of practice. Mm -hmm. Okay. We all have them already. We all have them already. Typically, if I were to say what the typical American ecology of practice and ecology of practice and metabolism, emotional metabolism are like pretty close to each other. They definitely overlap. Um, ecology of practice has a lot more developmental stuff, but there is definitely an ecology of practice that is merely for sustenance, for, to, to maintenance, for your mental health, to, you know, to keep the thing, this whole thing online here. Mm the typical American 
ecology of practice or metabolism of emotion basically looks like intoxicants, entertainment, um, social media, and a more healthy one probably looks like introspection, meditation, sobbing, um, deep conversation, deep intimacy, intimacy, dancing, dancing. Absolutely, man. Exercise, all these things. So I, when I say that I didn't have one until three years ago, it was basically because I was unconscious to my needs in those ways. So just to, to sharpen it, it's, you have life experiences that produce emotions, you know, let's, you know, a classic example is that some, something is traumatic. Maybe it's like a lowercase T trauma. It's not, it's not like a big trauma, but it affects you and then you don't metabolize it. And then you're kind of holding onto it until you dance or until you have a deep conversation or until you, you know, you think you're treating it by, by drinking or something. Uh-huh. Is that what you mean by process? Yeah, absolutely. I think that our lives are fraught with lower T traumas. We -hmm. have just like, we experience them so often in so many different ways, like feelings like uh, for myself, I've experienced them as feelings of rejection, feelings of unworthiness, feelings of um, scarcity, disconnection, all of these things, conflict, We don't usually, or I think that when you realize that these things are actually things that need to be processed, you start to see more and more and more of them. There's also big T traumas that all too often go unacknowledged, unresolved, and most people tend to think that only big T trauma is trauma. Right. And so they don't identify with that. They're like, no, I wasn't molested as a child. I don't think pretty sure I wasn't hope I wasn't. (laughs) And they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine, dude. I'm fine. I have a job. I got this place. I got a car. Look, I'm, I'm an adult. I feel like, you know, the small T traumas, let's say some, somebody rejects you. I, I imagine that some people are affected by those more than others. And I wonder what it is that allows, what it is that makes people sensitive to that mm-hmm. or not. Mm. I feel like it has something to do with boundaries. Wait, what makes them what makes them susceptible to that particular thing of feeling rejected or just in general. So if, if we're playing with the idea that uh, the average human being experiences a large amount of small T traumas throughout their life and maybe Mm -hmm. throughout their week, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) there's something a little dismal about that image. Mm -hmm. Then you think about it. It seems like some people are definitely more affected by just the vicissitudes of life. You know, they're more traumatized, lowercase t, by just going through life than others. Some people are more resilient than others. And part of it could be that some people are processing their emotions and some people aren't. Mm -hmm. But I feel like another part might be 
some people are taking in these things as trauma while some people aren't mm-hmm. right? it has, mm. like it's, yeah, it's not, the, it's not the events themselves. It's your relationship with mm-hmm. the events. Yeah. And I Res- wonder what I, I, I feel like those two groups. Yeah. I feel like um, resilience is the word that comes to mind. Resilience. Why are people, why are some people more resilient to those experiences than others? And this has been a, this has been a topic conversation I've been having with one of my close girlfriends, Annie. She's a psychologist, Dr. Annie Pendigraft. And we talk a lot about small T trauma and resilience and why and how people develop resilience. And it's not that clear. Mm. It's not that clear why some people become so resilient and others not so resilient. But if you I had like, to guess based on your experience with resilience, what would you say? Well, I think that I've become incredibly resilient in certain ways and I'm vulnerable in others. You know? Right. I'm vulnerable in others. I'm incredibly resilient in the sense that the thing keeps bumbling on quite powerfully, quite strongly. Like with there's thumos, there's spirit, there's like energy. Mm. And it's like, even when I deal with like the shit, I just like, at least I bang my head against it hard. Like whatever's in front of me, I fucking bang on it pretty hard. Right, right. I feel like in other ways I'm susceptible to these feelings of rejection, these, these lurking feelings of displacement, unbelonging, disconnection, unworthiness. Mm. Right. And so I think there's, you know, it's easy to imagine someone has the opposite set of things where they became very resilient to feelings of inadequacy and being alone and all this stuff, but they just like don't really approach anything with any kind of passion. So mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't trade my particular set of traumas uh, for that. I, th- I, like, I like my, I like my, I don't know, I like to bang my head against things apparently. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I like what you said where some people experience that as, trauma other people experience that as life mm-hmm. yeah dude that's life i think that this is an important thing to acknowledge but i also want to inquire as to the possibility that the person who would say dude this is just life man sorry yeah but it goes on if he's actually just taking those experiences in himself and sweeping them under the rug because right. you can contextualize that as explainable and understandable but still not process it, right? Yeah, like, yeah, man, this is life. That's a shitty thing and you're going to have to deal with it and you're going yeah. to have to fully process it and you're gonna, like, it's probably healthy for you to fully let yourself feel it and to acknowledge it and speak to it and have a therapist and have a counselor instead of the more toxic mentality that's like, yeah, that's life, dude. Oh, you're gonna need to go cry to your therapist about that just basic thing? you know yeah I, I feel like there's there's two sides to it so you know i, I come from uh the discipline of stoicism and some, one critique that non-stoics levy against stoics is that we're we're actually just out of touch with our feelings right mm-hmm. that uh we're not actually sovereign with our emotions we're just pushing them aside and that might be true for for certain stoics um but the counter to that is actually no 
y'all are too self-indulgent with your feelings and you got to realize that some of them um, aren't as big of a deal as you're making them out to be. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's like these, these two sides to it. And I think uh, a, a potential synthesis here is, I mean, one way to explain this is a, uh, is through example, I was talking to a friend about um, when I, one time I did acid or, or actually this happens almost every time I trip with people where I might be having a bad trip, uh, but then somebody else is having a worse trip. And in that moment, I can't, I'm like, all right, like I'm going to put my bad trip feelings aside for a second. I'm going to deal with this. And all of a sudden this like wellspring of resilience opens up, right? Uh All of a sudden you realize like that shit wasn't that big of a deal anyway. Uh And something about caring for the other person or seeing, Uh you know, the relative severity of it recalibrates you. And then you're, Mm -hmm. you stop being so precious. Mm -hmm. And so I think that also applies in non-psychedelic context. Like, you know, it happens sometimes you're having a bad day and then you see somebody else who's like, has it so much worse than you. And you're like, I was just being an idiot. And then you just put it aside and that's not, you're not repressing anything Mm -hmm. there. You're just getting Mm -hmm. perspective. Yeah. I think that's interesting. I feel like we have just kind of outlined the two poles here. Mm. One is that you're, that you're too precious, that all of your emotions are such a big deal. And the other side is that your emotions don't matter. And I feel like this is like, I could almost, I could almost, I guess it feels like it ties back to that feeling of, of where in a tribal community, no one's development, like every single person's development was of utmost importance. Right. And that doesn't mean in overindulgent into their emotions. And so I think that you're right. People can be on both sides of this. They can be on that your experience doesn't matter and it's fine. Just buck up and shut up and keep moving. And the other one is like, you actually need to be, to allow yourself to be precious enough that you can actually like cry when you like, when there's things that are sob worthy, like it has to come out somewhere. It's going to come out somewhere. It's going to come out somewhere. It is going to come out somewhere. And well, I think, I think another piece, another variable here is it hinges on what you said when things are, Sobworthy. That that's not always clear, right? That's not an objective thing, mm-hmm. right? That there's an interpretive layer. I, I remember, I think it may have been Jordan Peterson who gave this example. He said, um, "If you see, uh, if there's like a parent, so kids when they're growing up, they don't know how to react to novel stimuli. So mm-hmm. if a mouse runs across the kitchen floor, the kid doesn't know." how to react to it. It doesn't know if it's a scary thing. It doesn't know if it's a playful thing. So it'll always look to the parent to regulate its response to reality. And so if the mouse walks by and the mom doesn't really do anything about it, then the kid won't be afraid of mice. But if the, if the mouse walks by and the mom freaks out and screams and jumps on the table, then the kid will also have like a fight or flight response. Uh And then they will think of that thing as something frightening. Yeah. And that is what gives us our kind of, emotional architecture of what we determine is sob worthy or not. And I think there, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of freedom to be had by altering that architecture, right? Our, the readjusting our interpretations, because 
I think we're so much tougher than we think we are. And a lot of, I think there's greater risk of being too precious about things because we jump into our first interpretation than there is risk of being too stoic about things or too dissociated from our emotions. Although there's risk on both sides. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I think it's clear that you, it's obvious in your own life, you've embodied that you're going to err on one side of that coin or the other. <laughs> you might as well, right? And it, you know, it seems to be working for me. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is working. It's, it's working. It's really working. We appreciate the spectacle that you are. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm not sure if it's, if it's rank orderable. I think that I think that you can both, I think you can lose your mind in both directions. I think, you Absolutely. Can give, I think you can give yourself cancer in both directions emotionally. I think you can ruin your relationships in both of those directions. And I think that the balance is what's important. That, and, that, and that's the thing, Daniel. It's not like, it's not like a... It's not like a rigid structure. It's a metabolism. It's like a microbiome. It's like an ecology, right? And at the end of the day, you can't argue with results. Mm -hmm. If you're going through things and you're processing them and you're staying functional and you're staying soft enough to feel and not hardening, and you're also not getting so soft that you can't fucking get out of bed. It's like, you can't argue with results. You know, it's like right. ecology is going to be both complex and mysterious like there's parts of it that we need to, there's like big holes that need frameworks and like, okay, we need to like put a meditation practice right here in this gigantic hole of like what happens in the morning right. or like, you know, sometimes there's holes and other times it's like, man, like, I, I don't know. I, I guess I, I have a unique peer group that I am a very tough man. And I find myself around very tough, adventurous, masculine men, right? Mm. And so I'm kind of like, I'm kind of coming into this from the side of like, I've been, I was a tough boy and I was like, toughness was one of my like strengths, man. Like I mm. used to jump off of these cliffs and I used to land in these trees where I would just open my arms and I would just grab the fucking branches as they just impacted me. And I was like, I was green and flexible and like it didn't injure me, although it like hurt me and I would just do it over and over. Right. So toughness is something I, I, I have a deep lineage of toughness. Like I said, my great grandparents were homesteaders here in central Oregon. They're cattle ranchers. So like toughness is something that I, I, I have an abundance of toughness, but I also have an abundance of toughness to the point that, my divorce is still haunting my current relationships that my adolescence is haunting my fucking dreams that my relationship with my parents is for the most part unexamined. And now as these things rise up, I have to at least give them enough credence that I can be tough enough to try to resolve them. Right. And so my intuition is that the vast majority of men, especially those who listen to this podcast who have found me through paragliding or skiing or highlining or however it is that they've found this. 
my intuition is that men in general, we err on the side of toughness. Women probably are the other way. And I think that as we, what we're seeing right now from a larger, more zoomed out picture is that we have this, right now we have like this social justice fervor that is in general, I would say vastly too soft. That mean that everyone that we're like walking on eggshells of microaggressions and, and political mm. correctness and cancel culture and groupthink And there's like, you know, so I, I don't think it's like one or the other. I think the yin yang has an equal distribution of color in it. <laughs> you know, there's like, there's like good in the bad and there's bad in the good. And well, I, I have a potential synthesis as we, as we close, okay. I'm, re- I'm reminded of um, a Viktor Frankl quote um, between the stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space, we, therein lies our freedom. I mean, something mm. like that. And I think that speaks to the idea of interpretation and it's not mm. the events themselves. It's mm-hmm. how we perceive them that yeah. influences our emotions around them. Absolutely. And the synthesis is that when you're talking about the importance of processing, Maybe processing is just another word for reinterpretation. Hmm. So you can interpret things on the fly in a way that keep you like solid, you know, that you have boundaries, you're not affected by the mouse running across the kitchen floor, or you can misinterpret it or have an interpretation that causes you to go into fight or flight. And then a few years later you process it and you reinterpret it. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of the enterprise of talk therapy. Uh, journaling, um, all these practices you referred to before. But I guess I'm not, I'm not trying to turn people away from looking at their emotions and exploring them and feeling them. But I do think we need a sophisticated way of interpreting them without having them take over, without mm-hmm. having them yeah. be destiny. Because mm-hmm. you could be in therapy for many decades and only make incremental progress or you can make a decision one day and realize that, all right, I'm going to have this issue that I dealt with ever since I was a kid and I'm going to face it and I'm going to face it with sophisticated toughness. And maybe that's enough. It could be one night's party. It can change the whole thing. Yeah. Or one conversation. Yeah. Straight up, straight up. I think that's a beautiful synthesis and I just want to lay over the top of that, the, interconnected complexity and mysteriousness of ecology of our minds, of our emotions, of our interactions. And there's no one way here. And I think people can be on both ends of those spectrums needing to toughen up and needing to soften. And my experience has been that I've been, that life has been pounding me like a Mm. rock inside of a sock into dust. And I, that I need to just soften and soften. And so I think there's, I can think of other people who live in my house who need to toughen, right? That's been Mm. a dichotomy in our relationship that I need to soften and she needs to toughen. So, right. (laughs) I think that's a great synthesis. Thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate you uh, (laughs) co-hosting. I don't really, I don't really do interviews. Interviews aren't really my thing. It is like, I just have myriad co-hosts. Yeah, I feel like you are unabashedly yourself. 
and I I enjoy that. Mm, thanks, buddy. It was good chatting with you again, Ari. Yeah, man. Let's yeah. do it again soon. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll... Have a great day, Daniel. See you later, man. You too. Okay, you guys. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, Daniel, for coming on. I love your insights. What a rad brother in philosophy you are. You guys enjoy your week, all right? Stay happy. Stay healthy. Stay sane. Keep thinking. Keep loving. We'll talk soon. Peace.